From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin, Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. Have you ever thought about what New York City was like before Europeans settled the area? This is just one of the many questions answered by Michael Kimmelman's latest small gem of a book, The Intimate City, Walking New York. The book combines Michael's own knowledge of the city with other points of view. He invited planners, professors, and architects to join him on walks around the quiet streets of pandemic New York. Kimmelman is the architecture critic for the New York Times and was previously the chief art critic based in Berlin. He's also the founder of a new project from the Times called Headway, which focuses on global affairs and a two-time Pulitzer finalist. Today we'll talk about Michael's book, his work for the Times, and his own upbringing as the son of a leftist doctor in Greenwich Village. It's Wednesday, March 1st, and this is News Nerds. Michael Kimmelman is the architecture critic for the New York Times. He's reported from more than 40 countries, but today we'll stay in New York. During the pandemic, Michael invited professors, planners, and architects to walk with him around the empty streets. His latest book, The Intimate City, Walking New York, is what resulted. It's kind of like a miniature coffee table book. It's filled with pictures of the city's unique neighborhoods and details about how the city has gone through change. Michael's joining us now to talk about what he learned through the project. Thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Ezra. Because you've traveled to so many cities around the world, uh, you were the art critic before you became architecture critic. Uh, and that put you in many different uh, cities. And now, of course, you're traveling for for the your job as architecture critic. How is New York different from other cities that you visited? Well, I think um, New York is, you know, New Yorkers like to think that, of course, it's completely different and uh, than any place else. And it's it's really just more of what you find in many other places. But that that sense of density and the the sheer sort of scale of the city the the way in which it's really it really is a global city because it has become a meeting place for so many people that i think creates a kind of a kind of environment um a kind of society that is actually not that common there are very many great cities around the world but they don't necessarily have the same mix of people and there are great cities that are have a lot of people, but they're often spread out. And there's a density to New York, a way in which people come together and interact, and that neighborhoods are right next to each other. Uh, change can be right around the corner in New York. I lived in Berlin for years, another city I love a lot, when I was a columnist covering Europe and the Middle East. And it's global as well, but it feels much less dense than New York. And there are all of these sort of intermediary spaces, not quite empty, but almost empty. That's a different feel. New York's intensity comes a lot from the concentration of people and things, um, and so many people and so many things. It's funny that you mentioned that New York is known for the way that people interact and kind of the social aspect of, of living in a city, because I think a lot of times... New York and other cities in the United States are portrayed as so busy and so overrun with people that many people don't even interact. They're just going to their jobs, you know, trying to get to the next place on their on their busy day. So how do New Yorkers interact? 
That's a really good question. Um, I do think there's a perception that New Yorkers can be, you know, abrupt. And as you said, everybody's in such a hurry, nobody really notices or cares about other people. I don't think that's really true at all. But I, I think it's worth unpacking a little bit the way many people interact in towns and in other cities. Uh, many people, for instance, go to and from their homes in a car. They don't really have any interactions with somebody until they arrive at their destination. They don't really walk to destinations on you know busy streets. Um, so there's something inevitable in New York about the interactions you have with a lot of with a lot of different people. And those interactions, even if they're not sort of consciously, openly, you know, talking to everybody around you, although that happens all the time, um, they're, they're part of what you might call an urban compact, a way in which people agree to share the same sidewalk, the same subway car, to sit next to each other in the subway car or on the bus or, you know, in a theater or at a restaurant that's crowded. And that is a kind of unspoken but very crucial aspect of the way a city functions, you know, that we're all in this together, which doesn't mean we all love each other and doesn't mean there aren't, you know, incidents and and problems that, that happen. But I think it's kind of fundamental to the idea of the city itself that, you know, we're, we're in this together. Uh, and that also means that we have to, as a society or people who come here as well, find an equilibrium, sort of work things out. There's an understanding that this is shared space, uh, a shared undertaking. I, I personally find that very beautiful. It, not a knock on, you know, any other kind of living arrangement or other places. I mean, in some, I would just say that, uh, you know, of course, you're passing thousands of people every day when you're moving through New York, and not everybody says hello. But I think Really, New York on some deep level is actually a, a very open and welcoming place. Um, I don't mean to sound Pollyanna-ish and like everybody's great here, but I think it's it's inherently a much more welcoming and friendly place than it's often given credit for. That's interesting that you, you say it like that because here uh, our town is 50,000 people it's growing very fast, but you know it's it's a it's a thirty minute car ride from our house here to to uh, downtown. And during that, I if we don't interact with any other person. You know, we don't walk downtown. So it's interesting that you you think about it like that. I, I want to get into kind of the substance of the book and who you talk to. But I wanted to ask first, how do you define your role as a critic? I think you do it a little bit differently than other critics might um, have in the, in the history of, of the New York Times. So how do you define your role as architecture critic? I mean, there have been uh, only a few people who've had this particular job um, since it was basically invented in the 1960s. I think, you know, there's a way to do this job that makes sense at different times. For me, the job, and it's really what's always interested me about the job since I was a boy, frankly, reading Ada Louise Huxtable, who was the Times's first architecture critic. Um, what's always interested me was to see it really as about not just individual buildings or the achievements of individual architects, which 
are extremely interesting and important in the history of culture and um, as as well as you know just the history of art. But to see it really as um, a kind of a, a a place from which to ask questions about the the, the world we are building, the city we are building, the neighborhoods and communities we are building, because after all. A work of architecture doesn't exist like a sculpture. It's not on a pedestal and separate from everything else. It exists on a street, in a neighborhood, um, in a city or a town. And so it it's it has a public function and, and it has to do certain things. It either does those things better or worse, and those things may change over time, whereas a painting is a painting. Um, and it might move from a church to a museum, but otherwise... It's pretty much what you see and what was originally created by the artist in the studio. So, so that opens up for me these questions of, you know, what is the society we're building, uh, literally? And therefore, I'm very interested in um, seeing the way in which architecture and the built world generally speaks to larger issues about our society, about equity, um, about the environment, um, about beauty in the streets, about the shared public spaces. Um, we were talking about the city a second ago. All, all those things seem to me part of my job. And I understand that some people would um, see it as a large expansion of the job or a dilution of the job or a failure to even focus enough on just the formal material aspects of architecture, the kind of way buildings look and the actual material invention of the buildings. But I, I see it as a much broader canvas. And if I may also say, Ezra, you know, the interesting thing to me about architects, the reason I admire them so much is because their job is is not like a sculptor's job. They They have to interact with clients and often with governments and with a lot of other people, with engineers and builders and so their job, too, has to take in a lot of different perspectives, and um, it has to sort of bring them together to create something that has, that makes sense, um, not just in their head, but in, in the real world. So I, I like to think that I'm honoring something of the complexity of the job that architects perform when I talk about architecture in, in a broader sense as the built world. In the, in the first chapter of your book, uh, you walk with conservation ecologist Eric Sanderson, and he tells you about the land that New York is actually built on and what it looked like before uh, the skyscrapers and the, and the businesses and the streets were built. Uh, so are there areas of New York that still resemble the geographic layout that they did before Europeans settled the area? Are there areas of, of land where there's the natural valleys and hills that were there before the land was developed? Yeah, that's the surprising answer is there actually are a couple of spots that after all of, you know, <laughs> these centuries um, remain little remnants, little, little signs of, um, you know, pre-colonial days. Um, but not too many, of course. What I what I think was really beautiful about uh, walking around with Eric um, and the reason why I had so much fun doing that walk in Lower Manhattan and then also one in the Bronx is because it was, you know, just 
jaw-dropping and eye-opening for me. You walk around places all the time, and you may have you know wondered what shop there was before the one that's there now, or who lived in that building before the people who live there now. But Eric's perspective goes back really to the dawn of time and the sort of very geological origins of the city and then the ways in which, you know, ice ages shaped the harbor. And it it's actually, to me, revelatory because it explains a lot about why New York is what it is, how it became such a great city, where, where terms like Brooklyn Heights came from. Why is it a height? And and so forth. So I I thought you know those were those were wonderful walks to do, even if you couldn't see any longer what the city what what this place looked like um, before Henry Hudson sailed through the the Straits into the harbor. You could begin to sort of picture just what a paradise it must have been. As one of the most interesting thought exercises. Uh, that comes up in the book is something Eric mentions, which is New York was such a kind of paradise, a paradise of nature with 55 different ecosystems as diverse or more diverse actually than Yosemite, and yet a tiny fraction of the size with all sorts of different flora and fauna and so forth, that if by some you know odd twist of history, the United States had been settled from west to east. He wonders whether or not New York would not have just been preserved as sort of the greatest natural wonder uh, in in the country, because now we see it, of course, as the most extravagant man-made place on the planet. Um, but it had been something very, very different. And that original natural wonder was really the reason it developed the way it did. So I find that super interesting. Um, and thank you for mentioning Eric's walk. Yeah, that was, that was something interesting that I uh, picked out from that chapter too, was, um, you know, all the possibilities that could have happened if our country was settled differently. And I think that part of the reason that New York doesn't have uh all, you know all of that diversity now is just also relates to how we settled the country you know back then uh it was settled because it was a great port and it was a, it, there was so many natural resources and you know it's it's not thought of in that light anymore because a lot of it is architecture is, is buildings um i'd like to talk about robert moses who comes up a lot in the book so who was he and how did he shape the architecture and kind of social, ethnic, and economic sectors of New York? I'm going to answer that question, but I'm just going to say, Ezra, you mentioned the diversity of the natural landscape of the city producing something quite different. But, you know, one thing that Eric also points out, and I obviously agree with it, is that it produced a city of enormous diversity as well. And I don't think that's coincidental. It placed one kind of ecology of diversity with another kind of ecology of diversity. And, and that's that's interesting. Robert Moses. So Robert Moses may not be a familiar name these days to many Americans, but for a while, uh, he was a very, very uh, important figure 
certainly in the development of New York, but really as an American figure uh, in the mid-century. He began designing parks in New York, but he became sort of the most influential city builder really in the history of the country. He was given, or he really found a way to claim enormous power in in decision-making in the city. And there's a book about him, a biography called The Power Broker. He was able to build almost half of what we now consider New York City and, and much of New York State and the surrounding area. Almost all of the highways and parkways, hundreds and hundreds of parks and beaches and bridges and tunnels and He really sort of laid out much of what we think of now as modern New York, but he also became a notoriously despised figure because as his power essentially got corrupted, or at least as he began to no longer really listen to other people or think at all about the consequences of his vision, he just was so arrogant and sure of himself. He also was responsible for tearing down many uh, neighborhoods in the city. And not coincidentally, those were largely neighborhoods, black, uh, Hispanic neighborhoods, minority, poor neighborhoods. So he's a despised figure for good reason in many areas like the South Bronx. But he's been dead now for some decades. And I think in retrospect, we can see Moses as a mixed bag and that we miss on some level the ability that Moses had to get big things done, because these days, of course, that's really difficult. Um, Partly it was a reaction against Moses's authority that created all sorts of bureaucracies and checks and balances and other things to prevent any single person from having that kind of power. But the pendulum has swung maybe a little farther than we actually wanted, because nowadays getting anything built and getting anything good done can take forever if it actually happens at all. Do you think that there's a modern uh, Robert Moses? Because he died in 81. So, you know, that's a big gap from then until now. Is there a developer that, that stands out to you as having that kind of persona? So, of course, Moses was not, he worked for the government. He was a public official, so he wasn't a private developer. There are a lot of private developers, people who are, you know, profit-making company heads of companies like Related or NATO and others who have a lot of money and do a lot of projects and therefore have a lot of power because they often have the ears of politicians. But nobody anywhere, uh, not even at the level of the president, um, have really done what Moses did in New York. I mean, I think you have to go back to a different era in America, the mid-century, Moses' heyday, the era of Eisenhower and the Highway Administration, the era of all those enormous WPA projects, Hoover Dam, uh, all of the building of the LA River uh, and the freeways there. That that kind of large scale rebuilding of the country is is feels a little like it's something uh, from another another time. So I can't really think of somebody quite, quite like Moses. What are some buildings in New York that have been torn down or demolished 
but that you really would have liked to see? Oh, well, that's a really good question, too. Um, you know, I think the the great example, the one that everyone turns to uh, and that started the historic preservation movement in America was the demolition of the old Pennsylvania station built by McKimmead and White from 1910. That demolition in the early 60s caused a, a lot of people to come together to prevent the demolition of historic buildings and caused the United, you know, the government to pass legislation about landmarking. And so New Yorkers will automatically say something like Penn Station, but I, I want to use that as an interesting example, which is that that was a, in many ways, a remarkable um, work of architecture, of Beaux-Arts architecture from the early part of the 20th century. But people forget some things about it. One is that to create Penn Station, a neighborhood called the Tenderloin had to be destroyed. People had to be kicked out. That was a, a largely black neighborhood, um, and those people were displaced. So for them, Penn Station was definitely not a triumph. <laughs> it was it was uh, a disaster. Many of those people ended up moving up to Harlem, and that accelerated the evolution of Harlem into the sort of heart of the African-American community in New York. But people also forget that Penn Station, by the 1960s, had become a pretty derelict place. It really didn't function very well. It was pretty run down. The, the Pennsylvania Railroad was losing a lot of money. And so there was a general feeling that the station was a kind of white elephant. It just was no longer really um, able to sustain itself. And so the demolition didn't seem to most people really that crazy. And I think this is important because we can lament the loss of many things, and we should try to protect buildings that are still really important to us. But the preservation movement in many ways, I think, has become obstructionist, as if everything has to be preserved and nothing should change. We kind of fear change. And actually, the history of New York before Penn Station before the Second World War, certainly, was that buildings, sometimes very great ones, were torn down and replaced by often great buildings as well. I mean, the site of the Empire State Building was the site, I believe, of the Waldorf Astoria, and that was the original Waldorf Astoria, and it was an excellent building. But then the Empire State Building rose, and now we regard that as a building we wouldn't want to be torn down. I think the a feeling now is that all demolition is going to produce something much worse. And I'm not sure that's always true. Uh, so Penn Station, I think, is, an, is a really interesting case. It, it, it's actually a more complicated case, I think, than some people um, remember. The chapters in your book um, are about the different areas of New York City, and, and they're really good at describing the architecture and the culture of, of those areas but also the people that you walk with tell you about their lives. Uh, so what was your childhood like in New York City? You grew up in Greenwich Village, uh, so take it from there. Sure. Sure, and thanks, Ezra. I, I'm, I really think 
that much of the book is is a series of memoirs. You know, we all have our own city, um, as everybody does, wherever you live. You have a you have, you know, you the place is a kind of canvas for um for your life. And so I was able to get some people to talk about their lives by by taking them around their neighborhoods or someplace where they lived for a while. And I think that's really important because the city is a lived thing. It's not just a bunch of buildings um, or historic monuments or something. In my case, the village was my neighborhood. When I was there, it was um, a different place than it is now. It was a working and middle-class neighborhood. It was known as a kind of bohemian place, which meant that you know it had a lot of artists and musicians and others, poets and others. And that was a cliche and almost a joke about the village, but it was true. I think more to the point, it was a place where people, a lot of different people came because they felt um, they could sort of be themselves. Um, it was a very welcoming place, fairly casual. It was not actually the most beautiful place in the world. It was also kind of run down and it wasn't always the safest place either. But as a small child, I felt it was really a neighborhood in a, in the way that I think people from almost anywhere could understand. You know, the, I knew the shopkeepers. I walked to and from school even when I was really little. It, it felt the scale of it, um, even though tourists were there, you know, millions and millions of tourists all the time. It was as if I was walking through an alternate alternate reality. They had their places that they went to. I had my corner candy store and the, my fruit stand. And, you know, I had my backyard where I played basketball with my school friends. And it, it felt really like a place that was much like a small town within the city. And the architecture and the layout of the village reflected that. It, it was a place that had always been sort of apart from the city. It, it didn't abide by much of the grid that the city, you know, had imposed upon it. And it had, though you could get lost in the village, the scale of it, the scale of the buildings was very different. And so I loved everything about that sense of a specialness that that made the village feel like home to me. You know, I think the village now is a very, 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 very expensive neighborhood with a lot of movie stars and billionaires who've bought the houses where my friends lived in, you know, relative modesty. So, you know, I'm now sounding like a, you know, older person who regrets change. I, I'm not entirely um, against all those changes. I think cities do evolve and that is part of their beauty. They're like organisms, they're living creatures, they're they're not the same. And change can be hard to accept. Um, the pace of change can be hard. So I have mixed feelings like any normal villager. I still have family there and I go back all the time. Um, so I still consider it my neighborhood, even though I now live um, elsewhere in Manhattan. So you said that you, you go back. Uh, Greenwich Village is considered kind of a, a haven, as you were mentioning. It's it's separate from the the city grid and uh, a lot of uh, immigrants. And you you mentioned the book freed slaves and LGBTQ individuals actually were were welcomed there and they lived in that area. Have you ever gone back to the area and felt that 
Greenwich Village was a haven for you? Did was it a place that you could think about your the next steps in your life or how your upbringing related to your trajectory? Oh yeah, a lot. I mean, um, you know, I came from a household. I have very progressive parents. My father was a doctor and a doctor to many people in the neighborhood. And um, so for me, the the village really was a crucible. It made me feel like I got a really early education in uh, diversity and, um, you know, in in the just the sheer variety of different kinds of people out there. So, you know, I still see the village as a place um, in my own life that was absolutely formative to me. But, you know, listen, when I married and and my wife and I, you know, we were thinking of where to live, I, I could no longer afford to live there, to be honest. Um, and, you know, I take our, our two boys down to the village. I've done this forever. And they've come to love the village, too, um, because it does still have a quality. There's an openness to the sky because the buildings are not all that high. There's a quirkiness and a sense of you can lose yourself in the village that, of course, they love. But I don't, you know, I, I hope someday they'll be able to afford to live there. What's different about the village is that it used to be a place that was welcoming because it wasn't that expensive. There were a lot of tenements. There were a lot of cold water flats, places where, you know, a young singer who had no money like Bob Dylan could find, a, you know, some place to live and and make a career for himself. And now Bob Dylan is one of the only people who can afford to live in the village. So that is different. It's not as inspiring, I think, in the same way it was before. There are other neighborhoods in New York, which I think have picked up some of the slack. And they weren't my village, uh, but they, they have something of the same quality. Jackson Heights in Queens, for example. Um, which has become a real magnet for people from all over the world, and is a, you know, a really interesting, lively place. Um, I wanna, I wanna ask about your family and uh, the structure and and beliefs of your family. So, your dad, <laughs> can you describe your okay. your dad's beliefs? <laughs> sure. Uh, my father was a eye surgeon and. Um, he was a very active civil rights advocate, and he, you know, was just a real old school lefty, very far lefty, very much involved in all sorts of causes. He was a founder of Physicians for Social Responsibility, an anti-nuclear organization. He rode with the Freedom Riders in Mississippi. Uh, so our house was really a kind of um, revolving door for lots of different kinds of uh, I think extraordinarily interesting people. He had he had very strong beliefs, like people of his generation. My father was much older, and I didn't really share his beliefs exactly. I admired his um, his general desire for uh, equality and human rights and and fairness and so forth. Um, uh, but I, I didn't. I, for instance, I, I never thought that you know socialism was uh, the answer, and I think in some ways that actually is what led me to journalism because I, um, 
I think he his sense that there were these big systems that had all the answers um, was something I reacted against. I, I thought the world was um, less black and white, more gray. But I'm very grateful to have grown up in a household that was full of people who believed in uh, debate and ideas and writing and criticism, really, as a kind of moral endeavor, as something that was important. My dad used to read the New York Times every day and circle and cut out things and underline things because he was absolutely convinced that the New York Times was run by the CIA. So, you know, in some level that that must have instilled in me a sense that the Times and doing something like that, speaking in a public voice and what was important, that it mattered. Um, and it was cool, you know, to, you know, to come out of my bedroom in my Batman pajamas and there was some somebody like Leonard Boudin, the lawyer, or, you know, Angela Davis or whatever. Wow. It was, um, it was, uh, you know, it was a very uh, special um, and exciting kind of place to be. Even if I didn't fully appreciate who everyone was, I knew I was, I was getting a window onto something that was uh, not normal. What about your mom? What did she think? Thank you for asking about my mom. Um, also, really good question. She, my mom was an artist. She was a sculptor. She had been trained as a physical therapist. She was a born and raised New Yorker, unlike my dad, who was who grew up in Philadelphia. The son, it was a, he was a prodigy, and um, my dad and he grew up in Philadelphia. The son of a physician there too. My mom um, uh, grew up in New York, uh, the youngest child of what became a single parent because her dad died when she was really an infant. And she, you know, uh, grew up in in similar kind of circles, but much more sort of at the margins. She wasn't so much a true believer as a, a believer in my dad and his humanity and goodness. Um, and she was a tough New Yorker. They were a funny pair. Um, he was a dreamer, and she was much more sort of hard-bitten, but very loving. And I think her interest in, in the arts and... Um, her sort of trust in him uh, and her love of me. <clears throat> These were, you know, the foundations. They, so I was, I was a very, very lucky uh, child uh, to have the two of them. She was funny in a kind of streetwise way. And he was funny in a much more sort of ironic, sophisticated um, way, gentle though. So they made a very good pair. They'd found each other pretty late in life and i was the uh the upshot of that very fortunate marriage we haven't uh talked about this yet but before you were a critic uh you you're very very in your you know you still play piano but uh during your childhood that was what that's a lot of what you did i think is is uh play piano and you're really good at it and you uh, recently you've picked it back up. Um, I think to me, when somebody is really good at something, that's kind of what they're known, uh, for, especially, uh, if it's a child, as, especially if they've found their place and they're not, you know, getting in trouble and, and doing a lot of childish things. 
was there a certain amount of pressure <laughs> on you to to keep getting better and to keep pursuing that one thing that everybody might have seen you as as that might have been your definition I think um, I was also fortunate there because my parents saw that I had other interests, and I think they worried that music would become um, too narrow for me. And I somewhere deep down did too. So music became something that I identified myself with, but I always had like a couple of toes out the door. And so when I went to college, I chose a college that had a music school, but was not a music school only. And I, I'm very, very glad about that. I still think that even if you are, um, you know, an incredibly uh, gifted person with a very particular talent as, as a child and as a teenager, it it's really very important to to try to see the world broadly while you can. I mean, I understand if you're, you know, an athlete and and you don't have a lot of time and your years are limited in athletics and it doesn't, you know, leave you the time to study philosophy and history um, and sociology, whatever, I get that. But I think outside those few exceptions, you know, one of the things that I think was very, very important to me was allowing myself to um, not not commit too early to one particular career. And you're right, Ezra, that I put aside music for a while, not out of bitterness or anything, just I, I got interested in other things. I started to write, I started to teach, and um, I just developed another sense of myself. But being able to return to it, to give concerts again, and to share that with people has been unbelievably important to me. And the ability to balance different things, to have, as it were, two or more lives is is an incredible gift. And I think something that is is important for maintaining one's sanity and thinking, thinking clearly as you get older. You know, it's it it's tempting to be to go down a path that seems like it's paved with gold, but especially when you're young, I think it's useful to not get not let yourself become too pigeonholed uh, too quickly um there, you'll have a whole life to go down that um the rest of that that path and and you'll have a whole life to come back uh, to what you missed <laughs> if you if you don't just go down only that path you recently wrote an article for the new york times uh, about the earthquake in syria and turkey and and you went to the area while you were based in Berlin, and I and you you wrote articles then about uh, what your visits were like. Uh, so do you have a sense of kind of what's lost now and what the culture of that area might look like as they try to recover? I mean, it's it's uh, it's hard to even comprehend. You know, um, I mean, we. You know, it's, you read about disasters, and it's never quite the same as when you're, um, you know, where you're physically in a place. We see that now in Ukraine, and you know, uh, your home is gone. Everything you knew is gone. Maybe your family is gone. It's, uh, it's, it's unspeakable, really. Um, but I think, you know, the other thing that is hard to wrap one's head around is, 
is the way in which the disappearance of these um, historic places was sort of wipes out parts of humanity and history which have defined us for you know for millennia. I mean, I, I was once in Aleppo, the city of Aleppo in Syria, and I was visiting a man, and I noticed that his family name was the name of the street. And so I asked, how long have your family lived here? And he said, on the street or in Aleppo? And before I could say one or the other, he said, on the street, 800 years. In Aleppo, 1,200 years. I mean, just think about that, that a life and a family in a single place for over a 1,000 years. And that is all gone. Aleppo was demolished by the Syrians and Russians, just wiped off the map, most of Aleppo. And, you know, <laughs> it's one thing to say it, as I said, it's another thing to just to see it. And it it's tragic beyond belief. You know, war caused the loss of so much of Aleppo, but now earthquakes have added to that in Syria. And the, the level of suffering is just hard, hard to comprehend. And in Turkey, the same. Um, you know, it's it's um, it's a reminder, I think, that we take the world we build to be permanent. It's made of steel and brick and stone, but it isn't. Um, it's something you know we have to build and sometimes have to build again, and it's maintained as much by our memories and our efforts to, to recall history and to honor it as it is by the literal physical buildings themselves, which are much more fragile than we'd like to believe. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Ezra, it's a real, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for asking me. my interview with the architecture critic for the New York Times, Michael Kimmelman. Right now, we're listening to a sonata he played in New York City. You can find his work for the Times at www.nytimes.com slash by slash Michael dash Kimmelman. Nerds is produced and hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com where you can catch up with episodes that you missed, subscribe to our newsletter, play our daily mini crosswords, and contact us. 
Find News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org slash support dash kgvm. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.